Grab a Bible and turn to Mark chapter 9. We'll have the words up on the screen, but today we're really going to be digging into this, so you might want to have the text in front of you so that you can follow along. Mark chapter 9. This is a series that we started last week, if you weren't here, called Lord, If It's You, and we're talking about stories in the Bible about Jesus. And the entire point is to know him when we see him. Jesus is the person that we've been singing about today, the person that we worship, that we're trying to surrender our lives to, so we need to know who he is. He's the person we're looking for, looking, to gui- uh, looking for to guide us, so we need to know what his voice sounds like. So for these next few weeks, we're looking at stories. So as we read this story in Mark chapter 9, pay attention to Jesus. Really focus on who he is, how he acts, how he treats people, uh, and let's learn more about our God today. Mark chapter 9, let's start reading together in verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. This story about Jesus begins in the middle of an argument. Jesus comes upon his disciples back in verse 14, and they're already surrounded by a huge crowd. They're arguing with the local teachers of the law. Those are the lawyers and religious leaders at the town they were at. Now, did you notice what they're arguing about? Look back at verse 14. Did you notice the subject of the argument? Yeah, me neither. It's not in there. It doesn't even say what it is that these guys are arguing about. They're debating, they're bickering with these teachers of the law, and as soon as Jesus shows up, whatever they're arguing about, they lose their audience. The people see Jesus. They're filled with wonder, and they run to him. And Jesus walks up and says, what are you arguing about? He asks them uh, what they're arguing about. And look who answers his question. The disciples don't have anything to say. The teachers of the law don't have anything to say. This father shoves his way up to the front of the crowd, and he says, not an answer to what they're arguing about. He says something completely different. He hijacks the conversation. He says, I brought my demon-possessed son here. I was looking for help. I asked your disciples for help, and they couldn't do it. 
The man completely ignores Jesus' question about whatever the topic of the argument was, which makes sense. He's in a desperate situation. I mean, his situation with his boy who's possessed by a demon, he needs help. And what's funny to me, though, is that Jesus doesn't seem to care about Jesus' question either. He doesn't say, I hear what you're saying about your son, but I asked about what the argument. Let's get back to the argument and figure out what they were. He's done. We never hear about the argument again. It doesn't matter. Mark doesn't even bother to write down what they were arguing about. Now the focus is on this father. In context, maybe they were arguing about how to heal the boy, right? You look at the situation, maybe what they were arguing about was because they had this boy in their midst. We don't know. These teachers of the law, they show up all throughout the Gospels. They kind of sneak up and try to trap Jesus. They ask him tough questions. They try to distract him, and Jesus always has a way out. He always upgrades the conversation, or he performs a miracle. The disciples, though, they're not so experienced, and it looks like they took the bait. They're sitting there. Uh, arguing, highbrow theological and legal argumentation is clogging up the spiritual airwaves and the father and his demon-possessed son are just getting talked over and forgotten. My guess is, in the middle of this conversation, the demon that is in the middle of this crowd, the demon that's possessing this boy, sits back amid this cacophonous argument and laughs at all these petty, squabbling men of God. Remember, when Jesus shows up, it's not just the father and the son who've been swept under the rug. There's a demon in this conversation, in the middle of this crowd that nobody is paying attention to, nobody is talking about. And I think that's exactly what demons want. Let's take a minute here and talk about demons, okay? I know it's kind of, you can't talk, you can't talk about a story like this without talking about demons, and we don't talk about this very often. It's a, it's a little weird. It's uncomfortable. It's kind of awkward to talk about demons, but we have to talk about it. I want to just pause and take a quick detour. Remember, there's a story about Jesus We're talking about him and who he is, okay? But um, since demons play a big role in this story, let's take a little detour and talk about this. Examples of demon possession show up all throughout the New Testament. People get possessed by demons and Jesus drives them out. It happens in all four gospel accounts and in the letters of Paul, we read about demonic encounters. And it's a little weird because as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, you know, in my life, based on the frequency that this showed up in Jesus' life, in my life, I've never met anybody that I thought was possessed by a demon. It seems a little strange. I don't know, maybe... Um, you've thought the same thing. Here's a few quick thoughts. First, demons are real. There's no way around it. If you want to be a Christian and believe that the Bible is true, then you also believe that demons are real. Jesus encounters this demon. People today, you know, I've heard a lot of people try to explain, well, it's probably an undiagnosed disease. He probably, maybe, you know, there's, you know, you can, you can wonder questions like that about certain situations. But in this story, Jesus talks to the demon. Remember when he drives it out, he says, you unclean spirit, come out of him. So Jesus is acting like this demon is real. He believes that it's there. Demons are real. They show up throughout scripture and we're taught that there is a spiritual war going on overlapping our world all the time, this cosmic spiritual struggle, and we are the objects of this struggle, right? Our souls are at at stake in this conflict. Satan and his demonic forces, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about who they are or what they're like. I think that's intentional. Most of it's beyond our ability to understand. It tells us enough. What we know is that they hate God and they want to hurt God, but God is invincible to them. They can't hurt him. The only way they can hurt him is by attacking us. We are God's only vulnerability, a self-imposed vulnerability, by the way. We're going to talk more about that later, so keep that in mind. That's kind of the subtext of this entire story. We know, what we know about Satan is that he's cunning. He knows um, human nature. He spent centuries studying how to attack human nature, how to exploit it, and he uses whatever tricks work, okay? So what tricks work well depends on the context. It depends on the culture, the time period, and the people involved. So why don't we see a lot of demon possession happening in America today? I think it's because the tactics have changed. 
You know, openly attacking people in a country like ours where a fourth of the country doesn't even believe the spiritual realm exists, I think that could backfire and it could awaken these people to the spiritual reality and it could have the opposite effect. It could drive them towards God. What Satan is doing here is trying to put us to sleep, trying to do what he did with the disciples and these teachers of the law where we all start arguing with words and we forget the spiritual reality that's right in front of us. I think that's the tactic here. But I've talked to people. I bet a lot of you have too from other countries where spiritual reality is the norm. You don't find atheists there. It's just a question of which God is real. And these people tell you about demonic encounters that they've seen. Places like Southeast Asia, Africa, South America, in our world today, people with a straight face describe demonic encounters and I believe them. So I don't think this quit happening and we shouldn't make that mistake when we read it. It's just that Satan's tactics are different in different places at different times. No, there are demons here in our country and they're at work. They just use different methods. They just have different names. The last thing I want to say about this before we move on is that as, Christian, as, a, as a Christian, when you read this story, it might make you a little worried. I remember as a kid reading stories of demon possession, getting a little worried. Could this happen to me? I want to tell you. The answer is no. If you have the Spirit of God in your heart, you don't need to worry about this. You don't need to lay awake wondering if you've been possessed by a demon or thinking it might happen to you. The Spirit of God is more powerful than any demon. Demons can't attack him. They, they can't um, stand up to him. And they can't overthrow your heart, your mind, your body, if you have the Spirit of God living in you. The Bible is completely clear about that. Jesus never encounters a demon. He has any difficulty at all driving out. And even in the book of Revelation, when God meets Satan himself, it's not a fight. There's no struggle at all. And so if you have the Spirit of God living in you, this is not something that you need to worry about, that you might be attacked or possessed by demons. And I think that helps explain Jesus' reaction in verse 19 that we read. Did it, did it seem like a bit of an overreaction the first time we read it? Verse 19, Jesus says, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? That's his response when they say the disciples can't do it. I think it has to do with this reality that the Spirit of God is so much more powerful than demons, but the disciples are just arguing instead of engaging. I don't think Jesus was saying that to the Father. He wasn't saying the Father's part of this unbelieving generation. The father brought his son in faith. The father believes that his son can be healed. He's lamenting the disciples and the teachers of the law and their whole generation who just don't understand how the power of God works. They're ignoring this father. They're talking over him. And then somehow they're shocked they can't argue away this spiritual problem. So Jesus approaches to heal the boy. He says, bring the boy to me. He approaches and the demon attacks the boy immediately. And that shouldn't be a surprise. Like we said, demons can't hurt Jesus. They know they can't hurt him. So they attack the thing he loves. They attack us. And look at Jesus's response when he sees this boy, this poor innocent boy thrown on the ground, convulsing, foaming at the mouth, rolling around in the dirt. I mean, this is a display of evil. This is equal parts horrifying and heartbreaking. And look at Jesus' reaction. He does the thing the disciples didn't think to do, the teachers didn't think to do. He turns and he acknowledges the boy's father. He turns to the boy's father and asks him a question. How long has your son been like this? Well, Jesus knew the answer. He didn't need to ask that question. But he reaches out. He gives the father a chance to be heard, to express his pain. He starts the process of humanizing this boy, who to the audience must have just looked like an object of possession, who filled them with fear instead of pity, with revulsion instead of love. By asking the father this question and learning the backstory, he's been like this since he was a kid. It tries to kill him. Please help us. Jesus starts to help us to see this boy the way Jesus sees this boy. And he gives the man a chance to ask. If you watch Jesus, he always does this. He loves to give people a chance to ask, to open up for them. And that's what this guy does. And I want to highlight this exchange, okay? I want to really zero in on this exchange between Jesus and this man when he asks for help. 
This is the heart of this story, and in a lot of ways, it's the heart of the gospel. The man says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Last week we talked about the fact that Jesus never does pointless miracles. Every time Jesus does a miracle, it has a reason. And the reason is always to help people believe. That was the core of Jesus' mission. In in Mark chapter 1, we're in Mark chapter 9 right now. In Mark chapter 1, at the beginning of this gospel, a leper comes to Jesus, a guy with leprosy, and he says this, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus reply? He says, I am willing, be clean, just back and forth. If you're willing, I am willing, right? Compare that to this. There the leper said, if you're willing. Here the guy says, if you can, if you can. The leper assumes Jesus' ability and only questions his will. Here the father questions Jesus' ability to heal him at all. And Jesus immediately recognizes this and he knows this is about to be the biggest and best moment of this father's life. The father's desperate, right? He came to get help. He just got an argument. He sees his one chance at help for his boy slipping away. And by the way, I just want to pause and say this. Here in the story, I don't know if he showed up with an if you can mentality. He might have showed up bringing his boy with an if you're willing mentality, but the disciples got in the way. It's so often that Jesus' followers create the biggest obstacle for people trying to find Jesus. And that's true today too. People come looking for Jesus, and we get in the way. We want to argue, and just like the disciples, and this guy, now when he finally meets up with Jesus, the disciples already failed, and he's thinking, if you can even help. We talked last week about the word if. If is my favorite word in English. If is a powerful word. It's a special word that activates your imagination. As soon as somebody says the word if, we're talking about a world that doesn't exist. We're imagining a new possible reality together that we can step into and inhabit and think about what could be real. If is a word that drops a fork in the road of reality, okay? That's why we have this street sign up here with a fork in it, okay? It, It drops a fork in the road of reality and it makes you make a choice. Jesus was a crossroads. Every time he met somebody, he drove them to this fork. He was an if. Whenever you talk to Jesus, he wouldn't let you walk away until you had faced the question of whether he was real or not, of if he really was the Son of God. And here, this guy uses that word if to create a reality. That's why we use that word. He creates a reality where this strange teacher who's rumored to be so powerful can help his boy. He says, if you can do anything, and he casts out his imagination to imagine, if you can, take pity and help us. Jesus' reply welcomes this father's trembling, uncertain, desperate little if It grabs onto that tiny little if and gives it everything it's worth. And that's what he'll do to you too. If all you can muster is an if you can, if that's the strongest prayer that your faith can pray, then just like this father, Jesus will welcome that. He'll latch onto it. That's who he is. He doesn't tell the man, take that back. If you can, of course I can. I'm God. What he does is he gently picks up that if and he moves it to the right place. He's not saying, if I can do it. He says, everything is possible if you can believe. He says, everything is possible for one who believes. The dad knew that he was facing a crossroads. He knew there was an if somewhere here. He thought it was if Jesus is capable, what Jesus is capable of, not what he himself, what the father was capable of. Yeah, I just wonder how often so many of our failures are the result of a misplaced if. 
We wonder if Jesus can save our friends, can save our children, our church, our country. But the question, that's not the question. The question is if we believe he can. We wonder, you, you wonder if Jesus can really save you from your habits, from your secrets, from your apathy, from your past. But that's not the right question. The question is if you believe he can save you from those things. Why is belief a necessary ingredient here? I mean, look at that highlighted sentence up there. Everything is possible for one who believes. Shouldn't it just say everything is possible because I'm God, period? Why does your belief have anything to do with it? You know, isn't it Jesus' will here that the demon-possessed boy gets healed? Isn't it Jesus' will that everyone gets saved? You know, who cares what we believe? If the all-powerful God wants good to come into the world, it will because that's his power. Isn't Jesus' power unlimited? Well, look around. Can't you see that's not true? Jesus doesn't want sin to exist in the world, but it does. He doesn't want sin to exist in my heart, but it does. Jesus desires that all men be saved, that everyone spend eternity with him in heaven, but people don't. When the Father says, if you can, Jesus doesn't respond with, are you kidding? I can do anything. Because when you look at it and you look at the story, that's not true. What can't Jesus do? Well, he never met a demon he couldn't cast out effortlessly. He never met a storm he couldn't calm with a word. He never met a sickness he couldn't heal with a touch. But he did meet people he couldn't convince to believe. Jesus, in his life, he talked to tens of thousands of different people. He preached to massive crowds. He argued and he debated against brains that he designed in a language he created about truths he embodied. And people walked away shaking their heads. People said, that guy's crazy. People said, that guy's a blasphemer. He's a liar. Jesus raised his voice in passion and desperation, unleashing all the love the universe has ever known towards these people to save them, to convince them. And they walked away skeptical. They doubted him. They mocked him. On the night he died, even his own disciples ran away and didn't believe in him. And that crowd was cheering for his death. What miraculous feat can't Jesus do? What is the limit on his power? The gospels are clear. The limit on Jesus's power is our own belief. You see this in so many miracles it does. He says three different times at different points in the gospels to somebody after he heals them, your faith has healed you. When he heals the centurion's son from a distance, he tells the centurion, go and let it be done just as you believed that it would. In Mark chapter 6, just before this story, Jesus visits his hometown and Mark says nobody there believed in him. Nobody believed he said who he, or he was who he said he was. And Mark writes, Jesus could not do any miracles there except for healing a few sick people. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Not a single time in the Gospels do we see Jesus miraculously convince anyone of anything. We see him argue and preach, prophesy and lament. He uses logic. He uses emotion. He uses parables. His entire mission was to come and convince us of a kingdom of God, a heavenly kingdom, and that's the one miracle he never did. Well, and don't misunderstand me when I say he couldn't do it. He had the power to do it. He can reach inside a paralytic's brain and fix broken nerve endings and rebuild the muscles. He can reach inside our brains right now and fix the spiritual problems in there. That's why we pray, deliver us from temptation. Or we pray for spiritual blessings like joy and forgiveness. And it works. That's because he can reach inside of you and change the spiritual reality. He can miraculously manipulate that. So why can't he just flip a switch in everybody's head and make them believe in him if that's what he wants? This is the same question I had, maybe you felt this way, when I was a kid and I first heard the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. 
they told me there was a God, God built the world and he built a perfect garden. And he put these people in there that were perfect, Adam and Eve. It was a great spot. God came, they were there, the world was perfect. And then he put a tree in the garden. And if you eat from the tree, it unleashes sin and death and evil into the world and they ate from the tree. Well, what's the obvious question? Why the tree? Skip the tree. Just don't put it there. Just put the people there. Make it perfect. Don't give them the chance to sin and there will be no sin. Like, why did God do that? Did he make a mistake? Why put the tree there? Love requires choice. Period. God didn't create us to be an army of worship robots. He could reach in everybody's head and make them believe, but by doing that, he would cease to truly love us because love requires choice. It can't be compelled. And if he did that and compelled anybody to love him, he would cease to be God. So this is a limitation that's not imposed on God by some outside force. It's a limitation he puts on himself because of how much he loves us. He loves us so much that he'll give us the chance to go astray. He wants everybody to be saved, but he loves us so much he'll put the tree in the garden. He'll let people choose not to be saved, to choose another route. That's how much he loves us, enough to give us a choice. Belief is the bottom line for Jesus. Just last night, I listened to my three-year-old niece named Sadie reciting her memory verse And it was John 3.16. It's a verse most of us know. It's one of the first verses I ever learned. I listened to this little toddler reciting the most powerful sentence in the universe. You know how it goes? For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son so that anyone who believes won't perish but can have eternal life. The reason Jesus came, the so that, the reason he came was not to end all sicknesses. It was not to drive out all the demons. It was so that we might believe. The center point of every miracle Jesus ever did was belief. Before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he literally says, I am doing this for the benefit of those watching that they might believe. We talked last week about how Jesus carefully set up this miracle of walking on water, sent the disciples out, waited and walked out to them. Why? So that they could believe. It's no different here. Jesus can heal this demon with a word, but he pauses first. He turns to the dad. He has this conversation because the point isn't driving out the demon. He wants to do that, but the point is belief. That's why he came. That's why he did this miracle, and that's what he wants for you. Now, I want to talk more about this promise, everything is possible for one who believes, because this is easy to misinterpret. You know, this is the sort of thing that if you read it out of context, you'd be like, these Christians are crazy. They, every, Christians think they have magical powers, like everything is possible if you just believe in God. Why don't Christians get everything they want then? I know this isn't, this isn't true in that sense, because I prayed for things with all my heart that didn't happen. I've asked God for things that he didn't give me. You know, in this verse says everything's possible for one who believes. I've asked him things and I believed he would do it and he didn't do it. I know a lot of you have been in that boat too. This verse is telling us a hard truth that we need to stop and acknowledge. Our job is to believe in the power of Jesus to do anything and then submit to his will as to what actually happens. Okay, and we can think about this by extending a metaphor that Jesus used. In uh, Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Okay, now think about this metaphor for a second. Picture your life as a house, all right? It's a house, and all the way around the house, it's covered in doors. And all the doors are closed and locked. And Jesus says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. He's at the front door of the house, all right? He's knocking on the front door, and he asks if he can come into your life and save you from your sins. And you say yes, and that's all it takes. 
and your soul can be saved and Jesus Christ can welcome you into a relationship with God. You can have the Holy Spirit. You can spend eternity with him in heaven, but he will never stop there. All of a sudden, you hear a knock on one of the side doors of your house. Jesus wants to come in that way too. And another knock on another door. He wants to come in that way too. See, Jesus promises he wants you to believe in every way possible, right? There's a locked door on the side of your house that represents your judgmental attitude towards other people. You hear a knock. He wants you to believe in him that way too. Do you believe Jesus can fix that? You open that door and you invite him into your judgmental attitude to fix that part of your life. Or you can slam the door in his face and keep it locked forever. Another door that he's knocking on, that represents your belief in whether he can fix your financial situation, whether he can fix the health problems for yourself or people that you love. Are you gonna unlock those doors that he's knocking on? Are you gonna invite him in that way too or keep those locked and not believe that he can help you there? You might have welcomed Jesus in through the front door to welcome him for salvation, but he's knocking on every single other door in your life, and all you have to do is unlock it and believe and invite him in. And by the way, he's never going to run out of doors. The work of God in your life is never done. As you think about this house analogy, you might think, well, I've really welcomed him in a lot of ways, and that's great, but there are more ways. There are deeper ways that you can believe. You believe that Jesus can come in uh, and save you from your sins, but do you believe that he can help your anxiety about your kids, your anxiety about your future job, your anxiety about the next election? Is that a door that you've locked and said, look, that's not part of my spiritual life. He's not going to come into my life through that door. In that way, you limit his ability to do that. He says everything's possible if you believe. So if you don't believe that door is locked, he's not going to come into your life and heal you uh, in that way. When Jesus promises everything is possible, he's not a liar. He's saying, if you believe, if you open the door, whatever you've asked for becomes possible. I know a lot of you have seen this happen, where prayer unlocks miracles, where Jesus does the impossible. But I also know that a lot of you have had the opposite experience, like me. Those times when you ask for help, when you open the door, when you believe with all your heart, when you invite him into a certain area of your life, and he doesn't answer that prayer. He doesn't do what you believed he would do. Well, here's a hard teaching. Possible doesn't mean guaranteed. He says everything is possible for one who believes. Your belief opens the door, but it doesn't guarantee that you're going to get what you think you want. Your job is to open the door. Jesus' job is to look through with his eternal, timeless, heavenly perspective and decide in his wisdom and his timing whether or not he will answer your prayer. It sounds harsh. Why wouldn't the will of Jesus just be to eradicate all disease, drive out all the demons, stop all the, disaster, all the disasters, and end all the injustice and pain in our world? Well, you know why? It's the same reason that his will wasn't to instantly drive out the demon in the boy writhing on the ground in pain in front of him. He could have done it, but he let that demon sit there. A literal demon of Satan inhabiting one of his beloved children in his presence, defying his love and his authority, and he let it sit there while he had a conversation with the Father. Why? Because the most important thing wasn't driving out the demon. The most important thing was belief. He knew he could use the situation to help that father believe more and help that audience believe more and help us 2,000 years later reading this story believe more, and he will suffer to any extent to produce our belief. Belief is the bottom line for him. It was the point of everything he said and did. If my unanswered prayer that I prayed to God, if my unanswered prayer could somehow lead to more belief in him for me, then I'm glad he didn't answer my prayer. If my unanswered prayer 
when I asked for something I thought I wanted, could somehow lead other people to believe in God more, then I don't want him to answer that prayer. I want him to help people believe. As Christians, we don't have faith in faith itself. We don't have faith for the sake of faith. We don't have faith that our faith will do anything. We have faith in someone, someone who we believe is all-knowing, completely wise and powerful. We have faith in him to make the decisions about what prayers he answers in his timing. Our faith goes to Jesus, not to ourselves, and not inwardly, selfishly looking at ourselves saying, my faith will accomplish something. Faith looks to someone to do something. It looks to Jesus to decide what to do with his eternal perspective, with his far-seeing eyes. That's a hard teaching. I don't like it very much. I don't like teaching it. I don't like telling you that. It makes me feel small. This story, you know, this, this truth about how God has the power to answer your prayers, it's my job to just believe and hope that he does, it makes me feel helpless. It makes the pride inside of me and my arrogance furious to say the whole point of this is just to believe and then hope that God comes through and does something. If that's a hard teaching for you, if it stings your ego to hear that a little bit like it does for me, just remember it was hard for Jesus too. A lot of times the Bible doesn't give us an answer, but it gives us comfort. And we find that for this problem in Luke chapter 22, Jesus falling in the dirt in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood, crying and begging God to take this cup from him if there's any other way. And God said no. There was no other way. Jesus prayed. Do you remember what he said? Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. Jesus was saying, I believe in you. I trust you. I'm expressing my desire. I'm telling you what I want with more faith than anybody in the world has ever said anything. And God said no. I've prayed so many prayers in my life, I'm sure you have too, that didn't get answered, but God said no. A lot of those now, though, I'm blessed to be able to look back on and say, I'm glad he didn't answer that prayer because there was something I needed to learn the hard way. I'm glad he didn't answer that prayer because it was selfish. Whatever I was asking for was just something that I wanted. I'm glad, and that's a gift you can only get with time. It requires trust, to open the door and trust. I want to end today by looking at the end of this conversation. We've been talking about prayer and what prayer should look like. Let's take a look at a prayer from the Bible. Here in this last sentence, I do believe, the Father said, help me overcome my unbelief. What he's saying is, I've opened the door to you. Help me open up this other door. I've opened the door to believe that you could be the son of God. Help me open this door to believe that you could save my son. I've been here too. I've prayed, God, I believe in you. I want you to save me from hell, to save me from my sins, but I don't want to talk about this other door that I've got locked, this other area of my life. I don't want to believe that you could redeem my relationship with this person because I don't really want a relationship with this person, so I'm going to leave that door locked. I don't want to believe that you can change this bad habit that I'm kind of fond of, this secret that I'm comfortable keeping. Help my unbelief. I don't want to believe that you could have that effect on my country or on my school or on my job or in my church. Help my unbelief. And the Father's in the same boat. It's a pathetic little prayer. It's a weak, pitiful, vulnerable prayer. It's a tiny flicker of faith hiding under a bowl. And Jesus loves it. He absolutely loves this prayer and he answers it immediately. Why? Because he doesn't need your power, he doesn't need your strength, he needs your weakness. He doesn't need your status or your riches or your greatness and pride. He needs your brokenness and your surrender. If you bring him your unbelief confessed with tears, he's going to work greater miracles with that than when you bring him your confidence that's just concealing your pride. 
When you come to him at your rock bottom, he will have a firm foundation to build on. When you offer him your broken heart and your outstretched hands, he will have an entry point to heal you. Help me overcome my unbelief. How does Jesus answer the prayer? Well, he doesn't say a word. There's been enough talking in this story. He doesn't say a single word in answer to this guy's prayer to help him overcome his unbelief. But he does just that. The disciples, they've been heaping words all over this poor man. That's not the help he needs. Jesus answers with action. That's what he does in our lives too. He drives the demon away. He steps up and says, get out of this boy and never come back into him again. And then he takes the boy by the hand to help him to his feet. Tenderness and attention, perfectly contrasting with that evil spiritual power and the ignorant high-minded argument that forgot all about this boy. The miracle in the story and the miracle in your life is never the point. The point is only belief. This father, he found his if, right? He met his crossroads uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, and he made his choice there. He thought the if was whether Jesus could help him, but Jesus showed him, just like he'll show us, the if is that when you ask for a miracle, if you can believe that it can be done, that's the entire role that you have to play. He's not gonna make you believe It costs him everything to leave that choice up to you. He's not going to make you believe. But if you can, if you can just offer him that tiny little unbelief, he can work miracles in your life. What will you choose to do? Will you limit his power with your unbelief? Will you close those doors in your life so that he cannot get through? Will you stand around arguing, preferring intellectual distraction to spiritual reality, or will you open the door, submit to his will, and believe? Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for the work that you're doing in our lives and here at this church. We ask you for more belief. Help us to believe in you, whatever it takes. Help us to confess our unbelief, to bring it to you, that we can be healed and that you can help us see you more clearly and love you deeper and deeper. God, we pray that you give us wisdom and strength and we thank you for your son and for the example that he gave us and his sacrifice. In his name, amen.